somehow I messed up the button. But hey, good morning, all. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. So glad to have you all here, and so excited to have Katie Hayes uh, along uh, on the on the podcast. Katie, have you ever been here? Have we talked on the podcast before? I can't. I don't Mm-mm. remember. No, no. Well, that's uh, we're we're writing a wrong then. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, on our Wednesdays, we often have conversations with faith leaders who are uh, helping to bring the common good into the world. And Katie, you are one of my favorite faith leaders, uh, and your church is one of my favorites of all time uh, outside of Fort Worth. I, I, I always say outside of Fort Worth, but I don't know that you say that because you're in Texas. Um, you're a little more specific about like Kennendale. Is that is that right? Is that where Galileo yeah, Church is? Well- you know, the reality, we really are on the outskirts of Fort Worth. We have a Fort Worth zip code, but Kennedale fire codes. And oh, if I you see. spit across the interstate, that's Arlington. So it's all kind of mashed up together. All right. We, we often ask people how the weather is where they are, because we do know that we disagree on a lot of things, but we do share the same sky. Uh, yes, like we a, do. Like a, like a Disney movie. And, um, and sometimes the weather is just really pleasant and great. Like Today, 82 degrees, a light breeze in Minneapolis and lovely. And other days, weather is something you have to think about and worry about. Like, I hope my car doesn't break down uh, when I'm far from, from people. Uh, that's our situation in February. How is it right now in um, middle and southern Texas? I, I've lost track of the number of days we've been in triple digits. And my little weather app on my phone says we're, we got a couple weeks. I, I mean, it just, we, I don't know when it's ever going to break. So 106, 108, 110, and then the heat index goes way up. So, yeah. Are they still using the phrase heat dome? Is that still a thing? They're still saying heat dome because weirdly, like south of here in in South Texas, it's not quite as hot. So there's something kind of sitting over this part of the the state. I mean, it's miserably hot, but everywhere, but especially here right now. Well, we'd love to know in the chat from people uh, how it's looking in your neck of the woods because you know in some ways i just want to run an old-timey radio radio station you know Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. some yeah. some ham radio level of uh, of a podcast all right katie um texas is not uh, home for you uh let's let's talk a little biography before we talk about all the great work that you do and, and we're gonna talk about galileo church um but you've been a pastor uh, i was reminding myself of your biography uh yesterday mm-hmm. and today and You've, yeah. you've done you've done so many great things um, and been around uh, the country leading leading different communities. Give us give us a quick little uh, you know, yeah. whirlwind. Where have you been and what have you done? I, I think you're saying I get around, which is kind of true. <laughs> I actually did grow up in Texas. I grew up in a little tiny oh. town in the square part, the panhandle of Texas, not really near anything of significance. Uh, and I got out as soon as I could. It's a joke, I think, that God is playing on me to have brought me back here to this uh, state. But uh, in the meantime, I traveled kind of up and down the eastern seaboard. I went to school in uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts. I pastored my first church in Alabama. I pastored a church on Long Island in New York. Then then back down to the south, I pastored a church in uh, Atlanta. I've been at this for a long time. And then... Um, from Atlanta, my family and I, my spouse, my kids and I made the move to Texas and we've been here, um, sort of in the Fort Worth ish area, Tarrant County, let's say now for mm, 13, going on 14 years, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, we didn't think we'd end up back in Texas, but here we are. When you were a a panhandle kid growing up, um, what did you know about like the East coast that you ended up moving to or going to college? Like, was that just an other world altogether. And what gave you the, if so, what gave you the courage 
to say, oh, no, I'm going to get in a car or on an airplane and I'm going north and east and getting out of here. Yeah. That's a that's a big deal for someone. It to do was that. huge. Yeah, it was huge. I just I needed and wanted out mm-hmm. of where I was. So I grew up in a, a small conserving town, um, as I said, near nothing and uh, went to the small conserving church in that town. Um, for a small town, there were lots of churches and we all fought with each other about who was right, right-er. Um, and I went to the most conserving of those and just really, I just needed out. I was the oldest kid and just doing all the rebellion. So I graduated from high school early and mm-hmm. took off to a school that my parents basically had forbidden me to go to. I sort of made my own way to go do that. Wow. And then, um, wow. yeah, just yeah, just really needed out. And it was uh, terrifying and I was seriously homesick and not all that good at it. Uh, and it was absolutely the right move. I, I regret nothing. And I ended up not finishing at that school, but the experience of living in, this was in Cambridge, Mass, for a couple of years, just changed everything and uh, really enlarged my world uh, in so many ways um, for the good. Our, our- are there is there a college in Cambridge, Massachusetts? I, I didn't I didn't know that. Is is there is there it's a sort of a famous famous place? Yeah, there are a few. I went to a little engineering school down the road from Harvard. From Harvard, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you just, yeah, you just would would hang around the Harvard uh, uh, student body, right? In in little right, Cambridge, right, right, little yeah. Cambridge, Mass. No, I was I was one of the nerds at MIT, and it was a fun season to be there. The ratio of women oh, to yeah. men was like one to six. So it felt it was a really, it was a fun way to spend 17, 18, 19 years old. You're in the panhandle of Texas in a small town mm-hmm. going to churches where they're arguing about who's more writer. Yeah. And then you go to MIT as, yeah. as a yeah. female student, which I know they've had female students for a long time, but still in the engineering yeah. professions, it's, yeah. it's long to catch up. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, decades ago, it was even, even more so, uh, that just, I, I didn't know that part of your story. So I'm so glad I'm getting to hear that. That says so much <laughs> yeah. about you and kind of how, like, you're still that person that was able, whatever you mustered up to, to pull that sure. off. Yeah. Uh, that, that has not left your, your available set of options. Like you're, yeah. you're still that, still that way. There's, about things. there's something in some people um, that the more you tell them they can't do something, the more determined they are to do it. And, and, you know, that's been sort of my mode for a long time. If you say it's impossible, then I'm, I'm very likely to think that's the thing that must be done. Yeah. You're going to dream that impossible dream kind of thing. Um, (laughs) that, you know, I, and and I'm a contrarian as well. And and I think there's a real gift that contrarians can bring. Some people get Mm -hmm. discomforted by contrarians and we do get ourselves into all kinds of circumstances and situations that may have just been better to take the road more traveled. Sure. But there's also, you know, a contribution that, that, that you're making. What, were you a, um, were you a real science kind of person? Were you a, were you into your faith? Like what, what, when you leave, you know, Texas and go to the East coast and MIT and Cambridge mass, like mm-hmm. you're entering into a whole other world of knowledge and understanding and life experience. Yeah. Were, were, were you yeah. science competent at the time? Um, I, I would have said yes, but what I realized when I got to school was that my, my high school had seriously underprepared me for what I needed to be able to do. And so, no, not really. Um, I, I didn't flunk out of MIT, but it hurt my brain. I mean, I was, I was doing the work, but it was, it, I just, I can still feel that feeling. It was really painful to get my 
mine mm. to work that way. Wow. And I could see my friends, my peers doing it and how kind of instinctive it seemed to think wow. in these very analytical ways. And it didn't feel that way for me. Um, and at the same time, I was becoming friends with um, students at Harvard in the Divinity School. I was going to church there in a new way where women, women's voices and women's perspectives and experiences were welcome in the church. And that was incredibly invigorating. So those two years I spent studying engineering kind of on the side, but what I was really doing was this deep wow. spiritual exploration of like the shape of faith in the world um, not just in the little conserving fundagelical silo that I'd grown up in. And it was a trip. It was so trippy. And so when I left school, when I left MIT, I went on a leave of absence. Actually, I went to study mm. Bible. That's what we called it in, in the denomination I grew up in. And I just felt it's like my brain just sort of slipped into gear. Like I could just feel it kafunk. And suddenly I was thinking the thoughts that I was made to think wow. I was reading the things I was made to read. I was just being in the world the way I would still say God made me to be. And, uh, you know, now I can, I can claim that as a call to ministry, but in the first place, just a call to let discipleship of Jesus be definitional for me. Um, not, not only, um, be definitional for me, like in a vocational way. Mm -hmm. And that, that just, it just felt so much better. And so I never went back to engineering. I was like, oh yeah, no, this is how it's supposed to work. This is how my friends felt when they were doing math. It, now it feels this way for me doing theology. Wow. Wow. That, what, what a, what a way to tell that story. Um, mm -hmm. do, when you think back to the, whatever your parents instilled in you, including some concern yeah. about going to the East coast and, sure. Yeah. Uh, do, do you think they were more concerned about the science or were they ultimately more concerned about you meeting a bunch of pastor leader, spiritual people that were starting to say women can do the things that in your town they weren't allowed to do? Do you have a sense of what, where their concerns? Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, their concerns were that I would lose, lose my faith. And so, and so for a conserving, seriously fundamentalist upbringing, losing your faith could mean that your faith would take some different expression. So like, so yeah, they were afraid about that. The science and stuff, not so much. I mean, the fundamentalism that I grew up in was deeply rational and education was prized. Mm. So it was less about going to mm. school to study engineering and more about uh, going far away to a place where the right kind of church wouldn't be available and I would mm. be sort of led astray into other, mm. other, just other paths. Yeah. And well, they I'll... were right about that. I mean, they, you know, yeah. my faith did find a different expression and it, the same has happened for my siblings after me. All of us are devout and go to church actually, but none of us are still going to the church of our youth. And my parents are confounded by that, but happy because mm. they're happy that we're still faithful people, but um, kind of confounded by how that happened. <laughs> right, right. Uh, that, that they were right about the things of, of impact and um have probably learned that maybe the result of those impacts were different than, than they thought they were going to be. Yeah, than they imagined. Yeah. You, you're really good with, with language and with thoughts and connecting ideas and putting words around those so people can mm -hmm. engage those ideas in a fresh way. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed you use a few different phrases just in our brief conversation here that I want to spend a little time on if you can. One of them is that phrase, uh, fundagenical, uh, fundagelical, fundagelical. <laughs> <laughs> just fundamentalism and evangelical. And the other is you're using the word conserving rather than mm -hmm. conservative. So you're using it as a verb 
um, rather than a you know a noun or an adjective. Can, can you talk about why you're using uh, well, well, either yeah. one of those terms, but really the the conserving I think is such an interesting yeah. phrase. I think I, I will also say about like my own theological leanings in my church that we're liberating rather than liberal. I just think that conservative <laughs> and liberal have gotten they're like epithets we throw at each other. Um, but the things we each do, liberating and conserving, are actually both good things and things, mm-hmm. you know, those are ways of being in the world that have integrity. And uh, I owe a great deal of my own faith development to conserving traditions and conserving folks, conserving generations in my own family. And uh, I appreciate the impulse to hang on to what has been good for a long time. That's a conserving impulse. A liberating impulse, uh, similarly, you know, is a, a way of thinking about God as one who moves us forward and unbinds us from that which has held us captive. And that's a good impulse. So when we get into the language of labeling people or movements as conservative or liberal, it's just like, it's just throwing names back and forth. But if we remember again, that we're each doing something on purpose, mostly conserving or liberating, um, and most of us are doing some mix of both, right? Mm-hmm. A way yeah. to remember this is about people doing stuff. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and 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 they're not opposites uh, in the same way that no. sometimes, like in I don't know, political or theological or religious worlds, tend to make those feel like it's yeah they're opposite. They're really, as you said it so well, um, engaging in different activities or different want to see particular yeah. outcomes to happen. Yeah, and all of us doing the best we can, right? None of us villains on either side of that, if it has to be sides. You know, each of us, none of, nobody, I mostly, I think mostly, most people are not sitting in a room going, ha 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 ha, how can I mess up other people? Mostly. Um, That's been tested lately for me, but um, mostly people are doing the best they can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we, I'm sure we'll talk about this at some point here in this conversation about the impacts of Christian nationalism, especially on schools and, and mm-hmm. some of the rest that we're going to get to. Um, and I think we're going to bring up this idea that about heroes, villains, and victims, because I tend to bring that up in this conversation a lot, uh-huh. um, because American culture likes to um, offer yeah. us three choices in the grand narrative. You're a hero, you're a villain, or you're a victim. And rarely does anyone see themselves as the villain. I mean, it's pretty, it's, I, I've been with many people in many circumstances and situations and um, they're like, well, I did this thing, but really here's why. And, and there's a lot of, a lot of truth to the fact that so often people really are making their current best choice. Yes. And sometimes we have to help people have more better choices that they feel are available to them. It's a, yes. It's yes. A way, to that. way of thinking. Mm-hmm. But it's also super easy to think that somebody else who opposes us is really a villain and can't be a hero. That there's there, so we we say things to sort of dehumanize or deheroize people, mm-hmm. um, and then if somebody else sees that person as a hero that we think is the villain, it's even more confounding. You know, then we're like, no, absolutely, no, I don't know what we're doing. Um, yeah. and, and I think the Christian tradition provides us an alternative to that, which is this human sojourn story that we're, mm-hmm. we're all travelers and we're all trying to live into a new world that we want to make possible by conserving and by liberating. So that's mm-hmm. what we're trying to get to. And so we're sharing new spaces and we're, we're all immigrants to this new land of being, yes. this new way of being. 
And yes. so we're trying to figure that out. And if we give each other then the space that we give to people when they're learners and beginners, uh, and we're all beginners at love, then, mm. then we're, you know, I don't know, like that's just a different story rather than uh, heroes, villains, and victims. And you're going to have a, uh, a victor at the end, and then we're going to have a parade and uh, yeah. things and things will be well. Um, yeah. It's just, a, I don't know, it's just a different story. It's just a different story. And, you know, you and I've talked before about my own family of origin, my dad in particular, um, who stands on, you know, a different side politically than I do on so many things, including in, uh, you know, all the way into national elections. Uh, but my dad is not a villain. He's not a, he's not a mean spirited, uh, small minded person. He has different sources of information than I do. He has a different set of experiences than I do. He has a different a peer group than I do and a different church experience than I do. And all of these things together are pushing him one direction where my different set of those mm. is pushing me a different direction. And when we can talk with each other in a calm way about these things, which isn't often and doesn't last long, but when we can, we remember again, each other's humanity um, and that we are each doing the best we can. And that's, that's the nicest thing we can give to each other is just that mercy to, you know, remember about each yeah. other. Then there are days where like I see somebody drive by in a with a car or a truck where they've cut the muffler off and it makes so much noise. And yeah. honestly, when I was a kid, there was a big movement to like make cars quieter. It was like you'd uh -huh. say miticize it and you know, you, I don't know, there were like rules and laws about how loud a car could be. Now it doesn't seem to be. And I'll watch these cars drive by, honestly, and they're so loud. And I just think you got in, you heard it sound like that. And you're like, mm -hmm. no, that's, that's pretty much what I was hoping for. Are you doing your best? Is this really uh -huh. like, what is going on? And, uh -huh. and to me, that's kind of this fun little reminder that also just bends my brain that um, sometimes people's sense of what they're up to is really hard to recognize. And I think this is a good transition into talking about how some people can support Christian nationalist ideas or school takeovers or some of the rest of it, because it, it can feel confounding. Like mm -hmm. I can't figure out how this is a best practice. This is a best practice for human beings to do this thing you're doing. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of harmful things people do to each other, which also makes one wonder, like, mm -hmm. really, it, is there an so I don't know, kind of make somebody, you know, dabble with the, the heretical bad ideas that are called Calvinism to think, I don't know, maybe some people are just rotten to the core. And, and I don't think that and I reject that full out and I can't l literally even say it without saying it on the side of my mouth like I just did. Yeah. But it does yeah. make somebody wonder sometimes, like, what is what is going on uh, with people? As a pastor and an activist and, a, and a, just a, a live human being that's paying attention to things in the world, how do you think about all that? And then, we'll, and then we'll get into Christian nationalism and talk about the, you know, the promised topic sure. of the day. I'm thinking a lot lately about kind of the interplay that we're expected to do as, yes, humans alive in the world and as followers of Jesus, the interplay between our individual autonomous identities and the communal, uh, you know, identity that we share, whether that's communal in our, our families, our churches, our community, you know, our neighborhoods, um, our nation, et cetera, and around the world. Um, and the idea that, you know, one of the moves I can sort of trace in my own theological development is from an extreme emphasis on individual uh, righteousness 
individual purity, individual fallibility and sin that it's and and that sort of the evangelical way of talking about that as having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that it's you know between me and God mm -hmm. uh, and that I have to get right with God myself and a movement sort of from that toward much more conversation around systemic realities mm -hmm. the communal reality that we have made all together um, and and by which some of us have prospered and under which some of us have suffered uh, irrespective of anything we've done to merit uh, either uh, punishment or reward mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and how that sort of tracks from conserving to liberating traditions both socially and religiously the emphasis on the individual versus the emphasis on community and how are we meant to think about that like mm -hmm. how are we meant to think about um, the culpability of any one, say, <laughs> any one racist, <laughs> right? Versus uh, systemic racism that is so baked into mm -hmm. every institution, including the, the white church, right? How are we meant to think about that? How, how are we meant to um, place the emphasis and think about the, the work of the living spirit of Christ in us to, to try and reset that? How, how do we do mm -hmm, that? Mm -hmm, <laughs> and that's, mm -hmm. that remains a big, big question. Um, how, because I, what I find in, in liberating traditions of church, including my own, is that we're much more interested in talking about the systemic stuff. Yeah. Um, and sometimes thinking of ourselves as victims of that, but, but sometimes also expressing our, our sort of participation in it as a form of repentance. But then that lets us off the hook for all kinds of individual pettiness and narcissisms that we all suffer from, you know, that we all drag along with us all the time. Hmm. Um, but, but we're trying to recover right from the heavy burden of shame that was laid on each of us mm -hmm. for, uh, you know, just, just our individual culpability in all things that all sin is individual. And so, right. man, those things are at play all the time. And I'm just, I'm thinking about that. I think we're just swimming in that, uh, conundrum yeah. socially and religiously right now. Yeah, and it's exhausting, isn't it, when you spend your time thinking about that? Because you realize, boy, these are the big human projects that people have been thinking about for a long time. You just go back in the written traditions and oral traditions of societies. Yeah. And this question keeps showing up. It keeps showing what up. What are we doing to each other? And why are we doing it? And what solutions are people providing as if we have a problem as opposed to a predicament. And I like the difference between a yeah. you know, problem has a solution. A predicament requires multiple responses to a drama. So That's we right. find ourselves in this complex predicament of human life and engagement with each other and the planet and animals, the whole deal. Yeah. And, and we're not, it's, it's not all that clear what we're, what we're up to. A lot of people like to make it super clear. And I want people to make it clear for me too, because that, that just helps ease, ease the yeah. mind. I think about the old, um, you know, if you think about some of the traditions that have told these stories in the, in the Torah. So you have the, the Jewish Hebrew community that carried stories. So four or 5,000 years of written history in that tradition starts with, you know, Adam, the son of God, Eve, the daughter of God have two children, two boys. Yeah. yeah. There's four people in the story. One kills the other. A quarter mm -hmm. of the people are murderers and mm -hmm. brother kills brother. Mm -hmm. Quarter of the people are victims in mm -hmm. this, in this story. And so 
you're so, I think they tell these ancient stories for the truth that wants us to recognize, yeah, there's a lot going on, right? What, whatever it is that we're all up to, family is not going to solve that problem. We, we know that in America that, you know, the, for a lot of people, the most dangerous place in America is inside their own home. There's Absolutely. A, you know, domestic abuse is the primary means of violence in this, in this country. Mm-hmm. So people know that reality to be true. They know that no matter how good your parents were, you know, mm-hmm. no matter who your grandpa was in that story, right? Mm-hmm. A kid with a dad and a dad, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you're supposed to recognize, okay, that's not going to solve the problem. The circumstances, uh, maybe, maybe it was religion that caused the problem. Maybe that's what the narrative is trying to say. Cause they had to think mm-hmm. about, you know, whose offering was going to be taken. But mm-hmm. I, I bring all that up only to say, this is really a big question that traditions in humans, as far as I've seen and heard and read, are all dealing with this with the same question. So then when we find ourselves in a conversation like we will now or what people are having to do, going to some school board meeting or something, you know, yeah. and they're trying to like work on curriculum and trying to figure out yeah. how, what, what the, it can make you just think, I don't know what's happening in the world. And then you step back and say, these are, these are versions of this same story of people turning on one another and yeah. not being one another's keeper, you know, back yes. to that, back to the other, that, that other tradition that that's the highest value that we can have is to actually think about the other and to care for one another and to know what's happened to them, even what we've yeah. done. I don't know all that stuff. It just, all of it, all of it. Well, so the, um, the poet Ross Gay has a, a new book of essays out, um, inciting joy i think it's called and in one of the incitements to joy i can't recommend this book enough it's it's quite lovely in one of the incitements to joy ross gay talks about uh he he plays with words a lot and he plays with the word independent Mm. independence human independence and we might say autonomy but then he breaks it apart and he says that um humans along with everything else in all creation we live in dependence we are in and he's talking about the interdependence of of all life, right down to the roots of the trees, right um, interdependent with each other and with so many other organisms. And um, talking about the the at least you know sort of Western but now American impulse to declare ourselves independent of each other, um, but that the critical time that it is that we we rediscover that we are in dependence with each other and the care for. Right. Our, for our neighbor and our neighborhoods, our mm-hmm. neighborhood, like collectively, not just one-on-one acts of, you know, generosity uh, to another individual standing right in front of you, but really thinking about that common good. Guess what? That's a that's yeah. a really important idea um, for us to rediscover. I think, and I don't think Christianity has been evangelical Christianity has not been helping us with that for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's been. Uh, that's been my experience. Evangelical Christianity was my introduction to Christianity, and it really helped. There was a, a version mm-hmm. of that that fit me pretty well uh, when mm-hmm. I was 16, 17, 18 years old and made sense of a world and gave me a structure and a framework and all that. And then I wanted to keep going and uh, have uh, considered myself part of that rooted tradition all along and just keep going down the path. And at some point, mm-hmm. people just cut you off and say, well, you're not you're not down that path anymore. Um, yeah. And I know for other people that grew up in it, it wasn't as helpful. Um, mm. And for some converts in, it was a period of time where it was helpful. So that's also, all that mm-hmm. stuff is curious to me, like from from where we've come and, and what are we uh, conserving and what are we being liberated from is, yeah. is super helpful. All right, let's talk Christian nationalism for a bit, shall we? 
Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe we have to talk about it, but yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's start there. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. I cannot believe that as an organization, Vote Common Good has to go training people. And we're, now we're doing trainings, not just for religious leaders and churches, but for school board members and for or, uh, organizations that don't deal with faith at all because they're running into Christian nationalism all over the place. Mm -hmm. So many of the culture war issues in this cycle of culture war are different than in the past, in my view. They're, um, they're rooted in a different... Uh, uh, story. It's a story that wants to say that a Christian worldview needs to be the dominant worldview in America and schools are the front line of that because that's the first place where students are, where, where children are taught something at a societal level. Mm -hmm. And so there's people who see that as the place where uh, battles need battles need to be fought. How do you think about Christian nationalism when you're thinking about it? Um, when, when you he, when you know, I know you read it or you're on a, this podcast or you're in the article that uh, sure. we'll talk about in a bit. Um, how, sure. how are you thinking about it? I, in so many ways, but I, I, one of the things that's come to me recently is, um, a sense of, I don't know, I'm trying to muster a sense of, a sense of grief, a, a sense of sadness mm -hmm. about what, what might make people sign on with that because i grew up in a very conserving home as i've expressed we mm. were socially politically religiously as conserving as they come for real like we didn't celebrate christmas because christmas is not in the bible we you know like i mean it was it was very it was seriously 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 fundamentalist and it was the strong sense of my family of origin that the arenas for uh passing on that worldview were the family and the church hmm. and our families and our churches were the places where uh, we reinforced how we thought about the world and how we thought about God in the world and how we thought about ourselves with God in the world. Mm -hmm. It was in those arenas. So it was, it was private. It was done at home. It was done in the church. Uh, and that was sufficient. It was never our understanding that the school or the public library, or the city council or the county commissioners or the court, the judicial system or anything else should reinforce that for us or make it a, like yeah. make the whole rest of the world conform to what we thought. Because right. we had a very good understanding that in our neighbors' homes and churches, they were saying different things about the world and about right. God in the world and about ourselves in the world with God. And we respected that. There was a sense that like we're all can I say, well, like, we're all grown ass adults here. <laughs> yes, and, you know, people are making choices about what they think everything is like, like, you know, where they think authority yeah. comes mm -hmm. from and how they live their lives. And we just, I just think in my family of origin and in my church, there was just a sense of respect that some other people are doing this a different way. We could argue about it, but at the end of the day, we're probably also going to all be still in the Rotary Club together. And we're, you know, my dad is still going to be the CPA in town who does everybody's taxes and is, you know, well-loved and respected. And it's, my mom is still going to be the principal of the middle school. Yep. And we're also going to get along, even though we don't share views about all mm -hmm. these things, because it's the family and the church where these kinds of questions about the way the world is get worked out. Yeah. And, and there so, were different, different sectors, right. Of society yeah. and people understood, yeah. Hey, I'm, I have my faith and I want it to impact and influence and I want to be a person of faith. But when yeah. I'm in public spaces, civic society, yeah, those are shared spaces. 
shared spaces. Yeah. And we trust each other as neighbors. We trust each other as neighbors. We know each other as neighbors. We help each other as neighbors. And I'm not trying to idealize small town yeah. life. I mean, there's a lot of brutality there as well. Uh, a lot of brutality. I wanted to escape, as I've said. Yeah. But uh, when I when I look back on it, I just think, uh, especially at my parents' lives and the way their social world worked, it just it, it was never a sense that they needed to impose that worldview on everybody all mm -hmm. around, and that they would do that with um, with the power of money or the power of the threat of of violence or or anything else. It just wasn't like that. To be a true patriot actually was to just live and let live. Right. Yes. Yeah. And to try to um, influence society by your relationships and by your witness, right, oh, in sure. that tradition, Absolutely. so that it would become the kind of place where the hopes and dreams and aspirations of God would come to life and that you were to bear witness, to have a light to the world, so people Absolutely. would choose to join yes. you, right? That That's, that's right. the world that I was introduced to as well. Yes. Yes. There are always people who are trying to use mechanisms of power to make this thing happen, right? The, there's whole Christian traditions that that are nation state traditions, right? Yeah, and they were right. not trying to like influence secular society. No, they're like, hey, we're gonna, you know, we're 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 gonna make Switzerland the kingdom of God on earth, and right. you know, they that those traditions have come down, or you know, the Catholic tradition with with a nation state of Rome and, you know, so, yeah. so there's been histories and, and sure. conquests and takeovers and by the sword, but it did feel like to me, and maybe I was just naive and living in a little corner that in the United States, in America, we had agreed, we're not doing that. There's mm -hmm. not going to be official religion. Mm -hmm. And not only is there yeah. not going to be official religion, the civic spaces are going to be as open and accommodating as they possibly can be. And then we yeah. debated about that stuff yeah. and things are different now. Um, mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. I think we need to talk about those specific differences because when people have the view that we have, and they kind of think back to other arguments in the United States about separation of church and state or the role of religion mm -hmm. in society, or where does the, the boundary of my tradition of religion stop and the collective tradition of the United States begin? Like, Okay, we've always been having those conversations. I mean, so much so that when they founded the Constitution and the, the Bill of Rights after the, the revolution, um, they started out with like, okay, we're not going to have an official religion. Right. And that was debated. There were people at the time right. that were like, oh, no, no, we're definitely going to have an original religion. Yeah. So, they had, so they debated it and then chose. And I had assumed, okay, that's settled. A lot yeah. of people have been like, and this is what I've realized in the current rendition of 2023 American politics, mm -hmm. things that I thought were decided. Yeah. Civil wars, revolutionary wars, constitutional yeah. agreements, uh, rights that people have. Folks are like, mm -hmm. oh, no, no, these are still active debates. Yeah. We need a national divorce, which is. Yeah. 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 A, a civil <laughs> war. I thought it was long settled that the book banners and book burners are never on the right side of history. I mean, I was yeah. taught that as a kid. Like we we that we knew that. We knew that that when they start limiting information, that's what the that's what the evil communists were doing. We were taught yep. in school, right? Uh they they're the ones who restrict information and don't let people learn and know all that they're supposed to know about the world. I yeah, yeah we thought I these thought things we thought these things were settled. We assumed mm -hmm. Uh, that the high school movement, which is a very specific cultural movement of the 1920s and 30s, which was the decision of the United States, 
to educate every child through 12th Everything. grade at yeah. public cost without right. distinction uh-huh. of vocation. Uh-huh. It was the first nation and still one of the rare nations that does mm-hmm. that. Yep. Full public funded education yep. that everyone can access with the same right. education. You don't have to get to ninth grade and then decide you're going to take the trades or secretary work or business mm-hmm. or something, which a lot of other countries would do. They would start funneling people. In the United States, it was fully funded for everyone, all the same, all the way right. up. It revolutionized the world. Yeah. including people literally want to stop that. They are fighting the charter system, the private school system, the vouchers, the current Supreme Court wants to revisit that commitment. It is stunning to me, Katie. Just stunning. stunning. It's stunning. I, yeah, you know, my daughter is autistic. She's 24 now and, and thriving in her life. But when she was really little, we needed a lot of help for her in terms of education and not just her, you know, book learning, as we would say, but like for her social education as well. Mm-hmm. And I got pretty well versed in the language of, you know, the, the free and appropriate public education, free and appropriate public education that's available to every child so that a, a, a school cannot say we can't educate your child their neurodiversity or their developmental delay or whatever is too much for us. We can't, schools aren't allowed to say that. And so we were able to leverage the commitment of our nation to educate every child to get exactly what our daughter needed when she needed it. Until we got to Texas, where there was already in place um, a sense that um, we can restrict Hmm. resources to such an extent that uh, we will we will hmm. squeeze people out of public education when their children are too expensive to educate. This this came wow. about about ten years ago or so. There was an expose in the Houston newspaper showing that Texas had uh, the Department of Education had put a cap on the number of children who could be classified with certain educational um, disabilities because it's expensive to educate them, and so to add another child in you had to take some child out because we had capped the number, which was declared completely illegal once it was exposed, of course. But at the same time, Texas runs this incredible budget surplus. The governor says he has a rainy day fund of billions and billions of extra dollars, which we just again, again in the Texas legislature failed to distribute to our public education system to give raises to the educators who have hung in there by their fingernails through COVID and through just so much stuff we have handed mm-hmm. them to say how little we appreciate the work they do and how much we expect them to do with so few resources. And just in case people think what's going on in Texas is not relevant to the rest of the country, the truth is Texas educates one in 10 of the nation's children, one in 10, which is why uh, which is why the textbook writing companies cater to what the Texas uh, state school board says can be in textbooks, which is why this stuff is getting rewritten in such ridiculous ways. Science, history, literature getting rewritten to fit what Texas will allow in its public schools. And that's that's impacting the entire nation and generations of kids right now. That, that is super insightful. I, I, we should do a follow-up conversation. We're going to have some other people around education on. I would love to hear hear more about that. That of course makes sense, yeah. right? That it's, it's like uh, California making rules for automobiles. You, yeah, you have to meet those standards because okay. you can't not sell your car in, 
in California. And if textbook people are like, we have to have this, these requirements met Mm -hmm. of not telling all the story of the story in order to have these books be accepted in Texas, then that's just going to be true of all of them. We're not going to have special Texas editions for the the Republic, great Republic of Texas. Yeah. And and that's the part of being a nation of states, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, is, yeah, we do have that. And we have a lot of autonomy. The, the, the other thing that's that's in on this, I just want to rant for one more second about what I yeah. thought was a deal. Uh, yeah. This public education, when I think it was 1992 that there was federal legislation passed around special education and that schools had to accommodate special education. Mm-hmm. But the legislation did not and still has not put federal funding to pay for that special education. It's mm. often referred to, and back in the days when the former governor of Texas became president, they talked about it as an unfunded mandate. Uh-huh. And they, the answer then to the unfunded mandate of special education requirement upon schools, that you had to educate kids and help them have an individual education plan rather than the mm-hmm. standard education plan in order for them to have equal accessible education. Mm-hmm. The, the answer to them was to remove the mandate. Yeah. Their answer wasn't federal funding for special education, which there should be, and not a Democrat that I know, and I know a lot of them, and I vote for them, and I'll continue to do so, but not one of them is pushing for federally funded special education for every school district in America. Mm -hmm. And it should happen, and they should be paying for lunches and breakfasts for every kid in America. And it is truly, literally a rounding error uh, dollar amount to pay for yeah. education across this country and it would free up so much, but it's not happening. And so for some reason we've struck this deal that education funding and all this is going to stay based on property values or some decision or of, of local jurisdictions. And, and I'm not even saying that to put any requirement with it, just have a mandate. <laughs> and yeah. if, if you're a special education instructor, your, you know, your pay comes from the federal government through the, yeah. through the school district. But I no one's talking that, about it that I know of. I don't know if you know anything different. We'll have some education people. No, but, but, I wish but even even when the feds offer money, it, they can't make Texas take it. You know, and so there there are times when uh, we're we're offered benefits as a state, and uh, we just say we just say no, thank you. So it, you know, Medicaid expansion, for example, Texas has just said no thanks to that, and so we have more uninsured children in our state than uh, you know anywhere in the nation because we just said no thanks because of that strong streak of individualism that just says we don't want anybody telling us what to do. If we take federal dollars, it comes with federal mandates and we don't want to, we don't want that. Yeah. It's really something. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. So, so sorry. here's what, here's what I think is happening with Christian nationalism. I'd love your yeah. feedback on it. And, and, yeah. and by the way, some of what, some of what brought us here was that you, you, there's this article mm-hmm. from the, um, from the star telegram, which people can go to startelegram.com and read about this. Um, this, uh, fight against Christian nationalism, uh, Mm -hmm. that two Texas churches really helped lead the way. And this little opinion piece editorial, which features Mm -hmm. you, uh, Mm -hmm. is, is about, um, the disciples of Christ church denomination also wanting to be publicly on the side of resisting the threat of Christian nationalism in, in, in the United States. And one of the things that I've realized in doing trainings of, on Christian nationalism with people is that, they often kind of get into this um, old-timey 
narrative of separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. And it's not really about churches for the common or for the new breed of Christian nationalists. In -hmm. fact, a lot of Christian nationalists are Mm post-church people. They don't go to church themselves. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've run into this yet in Texas, but this happens a lot. Somebody's running for school board on some Christian you know, commitment. And, and then you're right. like, well, what church? And they're like, oh no, I, I'm, I'm not part of a church I, or, or I'm right. a Jesus follower. Like they do the stuff. They use the language right. I use, frankly, like, you know, yeah. I'm, yeah. I've never been a church centric. I, I, I don't, I'm not a, deno- I'm not even part of a denomination. I, there's, right. I don't have a brand. I'm just a person trying to do a thing and get some yeah. other people to do a thing. Well, and yeah. so are a lot of these folks. So when you talk church and state, that's not what they're talking about. What they're talking about is this version of a theological position that's often referred to in technical terms as dominionism, meaning Mm -hmm. that there's dominions of God's reign in the world. And these folks like to identify seven of them. It's often referred to as the seven mandates Mm -hmm. philosophy. And one of the areas of of that is education. Mm -hmm. And but it's also business and media and entertainment and government and these Mm -hmm. these different areas of civic life. And their view is this is the new Christian nationalist view. It's not that churches should be center and a particular church's theological perspective should be, you know, adopted by the United States. It is, no, every area of society, these seven particularly, mm-hmm. should be under the rule and reign of God mm-hmm. with righteous people or mm-hmm. a key leader selected by God mm-hmm. to be the one who leads that. Mm-hmm. person doesn't even have to be a person of faith. They can be used as a tool. This is why yep. so many people support Donald Trump. They believe that in government and business and entertainment, he's a key leader bringing about God's agenda for the world. But so what these folks are up to is not, they're not arguing about whether Thomas Jefferson's narrative of a uh, wall of separation of church and state between the American Baptists and the, you know, in Virginia and the, the state government uh, should be seen as a, in a metaphor as a wall or as a, you know, as a line on the ground. That's not what they're talking about at all. That's why yeah. you hear Lauren Boebert say, she's a congresswoman from Colorado, say things like, that nonsense about separation of church and state, it's not even in the Constitution. Who cares? It's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is what's your role as an individual follower of God in the world and how you need to have influence for God's agenda in every area of life. That's why you should run for the school board. And that's almost a direct quote from her from yeah. a, a sermon that she gave. And that is what people are doing. So they're yeah. showing up to school board elections, not as someone who's like, hey, someone's got to do it. I have a skill set. I'd be glad to help. Yeah. You know, what can we do yeah. to make our school better? They're like, this is an arena in which yeah. the dominion of God needs to have dominance. And I'm going to be the vehicle to make that happen. Yeah. That compared to what you were describing earlier about how your own very conservative tradition approached the school and the mm-hmm. world. That's the difference. And I think that there's this whole new version of Christian nationalism that's uh, alive, but it's being met with a response from the old version of Christian nationalism, which was church and state relationship and and that kind of thing. And so they're just, it's, it's not a defense at all for this, this new version of Christian nationalism. And it's hard for people to understand why it would be a problem. You know, they just think, well, yeah, that would be good if we, if schools taught the truth you know, this kind of stuff. It just yeah. is, is unreal. Is that how you see it? I mean, that's my new take on it. And I think that this whole dominionism and this particular seven mountains theological view is, is really a danger to the United States. Do you, do you see it similarly or do you see some other things? I do. I, yeah, I mean, it is the, it is a really, 
his strange entanglement with American identity with Christian identity, as if those two things mm -hmm. belong together. And then there's that third strand of whiteness that, mm. and that's, that's complicated to talk about, but that third strand of whiteness comes in there so that it's, you know, we can also talk about white Christian nationalism because white supremacy mm -hmm. uh, and, and a deep uh, racist strain, as I said earlier, that just runs through everything is, is, is baked into mm -hmm. all that. Mm -hmm. But but such that it's hard to it's hard to pick apart the strands of it. Totally. Like it's, it's it's so tangled up now. You know, it's yeah. it's not neatly braided together. These three things they're mm -hmm. just all entangled. So that it's you could say is do you want that because you're a good Jesus follower or do you want that because you're a good American patriot? And I think they would say what those are indistinguishable. Nice. Those are both yeah. the same thing. And that idea that that old idea from the I, I don't know what century, but I was learning about it in the 20th century that, you know, America, America, U.S. America is a city on a hill using that biblical imagery yeah. that we shine, you know, we're the light of the world and all that. It's just, a, it's just so, it's so weird. It's, yeah. so, it's very hard for me to wrap my mind around that um, because to me, so clearly Jesus was not even a patriot, much, much less a nationalist. I mean, just didn't have interest in the success or failure of the, the, the empires of this world. Jesus was just calling us to citizenship in some other empire yeah. that just didn't, it just wasn't about this. And in the meantime, because we're a citizen of that empire, we do mm -hmm. the best we can for our neighbors, um, you know, for each other, sort of in the places yeah. we find ourselves. Well, yeah. yeah, it is, it is that I know that metaphor you were giving about like the braid, it's not braided in the same, like that. Mm -hmm. That is so helpful because even if you see a braid, you can kind of find a strand and kind of follow it yeah. a little bit. Yeah. But if it's a powder that's dissolving into a liquid, then you're yeah. like, well, where's the liquid and where's the powder? It's just, it is merged yeah. together in a way. And that's what I think a lot of people, there's a lot of soft support that becomes radicalized support for Christian nationals that people don't even know they've yeah. experienced. They can't tell the difference between, um, so, so like what, one of the, here, here's an example. And I wish, I wish I had it to put up on the screen, um, for people that are watching this. Um, but the, there's a series of questions that Pew research asks Americans that give us these numbers about how many Christian national, how many people hold the Christian nationalist views. And mm -hmm. it's somewhere between 25 and 32% of people that are supportive of Christian nationalist views. And then within that, there's like 10% that are super hardcore and then others that are more lightly. So it's a series of questions that they ask and the questions get ranked on a one to five basis. So mm -hmm. we use those on our website at votecommongood.com. You can take the test yourself. You can send it to mm -hmm. other people. It's under the banner of how Christian nationalist am I? And there's only mm -hmm. a few questions you ask and then it gives you, because your questions are answered one through five, five being yeah. totally agree and one uh, strongly disagree, whatever. And then you end up with a point value at the end. So you yeah. could get up to 35 points or you could get, you know, uh, I guess it's zero, zero to five, something like that. So you could get zero points or you could get 35 points. And then the higher your number, the more Christian nationalist you are, right? right? So that's how these, these surveys go. They're a little more sophisticated in sometimes, but that's, that's, that's how they work. Well, there's one particular question, which is the question of, um, the, uh, American values should, uh, should be Christian values. Uh -huh. And I have watched people the, of the highest uh, pedigree of progressivism, mm -hmm. religious mm -hmm. progressivism, take the mm -hmm. test, like watch them on their mm -hmm. phone. 
they get there and I'm like, oh, you're a question number three, aren't you? And they're like, yeah, why? And I was like, because no, everybody pauses and they only yeah. pause on that one. Yeah. And then they'll say, yeah, I, I did answer a two on that or a three or whatever, because if done rightly, then yes. I think it, because, you know, kindness and gentleness right. and self-control right. and, right. and like, see, there's the, there it is. Like, that's the root of it right there is. That's right. I, I mean, I think that. Yeah, yeah. I've taken that test and I, I got hung up. I, so I did not score zero, you know, okay. <laughs> on the Christian nationalist test. And I would have thought if you'd asked me beforehand, I would have said, oh, I, I, I hold none of those views. But uh, I can make a theological argument, a Christian argument for universal health care. Yes. Right. So I want I want to vote for universal health care. I want us to have universal health care. My reasoning for having that would be Christian reasoning. And. I think that an argument for universal health care can be made in a lot of different ways, philosophically, mm -hmm. religiously, mm -hmm. humanistically, et cetera. Right. We can we can say that would be a good thing. So I would be so happy to come alongside yeah. yep. anybody who believes that the health of their neighbor's body is important enough for us to pull resources for. Then, then we could all come alongside. So we don't have to do that from a Christian perspective, but that is a Christian view for me. So yeah, that it gets complicated. Yeah, yeah, it does. And 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 this asks for a level of sophistication about a person's individual belief, mm -hmm. their tradition and how they think America is formed and and put together. Yeah. Um and a lot of us aren't really there. So I, I and I don't use this to that illustration to like blame anybody for it. I just think it's really helpful to mm -hmm. see that some that many people have this this merged idea that because they're religious, mm -hmm. they think that their religion is the only place in which they're going to receive this level of teaching and understanding. And so yeah. therefore any agreement with that teaching or understanding is agreement with their religion. Yeah. Yeah. And, and growing up as a non-religious person and knowing a lot of non no, Christianity doesn't have a, like there isn't anything that Christianity is uniquely ethically committed to it might have some theological understandings right. it might talk about body and blood in a particular way or what happens to the you know a crucified one and a resurrection there's theological questions but the implication about what makes a person live live well that's mm -hmm. all borrowed tradition even in christianity you know like right. uh, any list you have is one that is not uniquely coming from religion and we don't right. do a good job of thinking about and, and look, who wants to worry about all this stuff, frankly, right? Like, wouldn't it just be better if we didn't take over our school boards and, and civic situations with people yeah. who are trying to make the kingdom of God their local, you know, Hamilton Elementary School? It, it gets it gets complicated. Like, like you speak of school boards. I have had much experience with a couple of local school boards over the last several years. And uh, if I go to the school board and I'm going to make a public comment, um, concerning say book banning that's the big that's the hot thing right now where we yeah. are um what should i do should i show up in my priestly collar and go as a representative of the church and say theologically christianly speaking book banning is a bad idea it's it's anti-christian it's not what we believe uh given our faith tradition please don't ban books or should i go as a citizen uh, in my stripes and yellow or whatever and just say i'm coming as a taxpayer uh as a as a parent of kids in this district um a stakeholder in a variety of ways here and i want to say don't ban books because it's none of your damn business 
what my kids read. And our commitment to free speech uh, includes the freedom of information and librarians are committed to that and they should get to, they should do their work and choose the books for the library. Um, which of those should I be doing? And I, you know, I, I waffle mm -hmm. on that. Mm -hmm. So far, I'll just say, to be transparent, I've chosen to go in the collar and make the theological uh -huh. argument because I say to the school board members, I'm here to complicate your idea of what is the Christian thing to do. Because you need to know that even not all devout, committed Christians yep. practicing, church-going, <laughs> tithing, church Christian, leading. <laughs> church, yeah, right. church leading. We don't all agree about this, so I want to at least complicate your vote. We've been saying that to the Texas legislators uh, for a while, especially around LGBTQ issues. Um, we don't necessarily expect we're going to change your mind, but we would like to complicate your vote. Yeah, you don't right. get an easy press release that says you stood up for Christian values because a lot of Christians in your district didn't want this. Yes. Yeah. Well, th and that's where things do get complicated is when religious, when uh, civic um, entities start using religious language as their own rationale, which, right. which happens all the time. I, I can't not think of Jeff Sessions as the mm -hmm. attorney general of the United States in introducing the family separation policy from the Trump administration at a press conference, meaning he's going to separate families who present themselves for uh, asylum at the border, separating children from their parents. And the rationale was, by his own statement, I want starts by saying, I want to commend to you the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12. <laughs> and he starts out with describing yeah. a policy of the United States right. with a sermon basis in Romans chapter 12. Like that level of Christian nationalism mm -hmm. is going on at school boards and public policy mm -hmm. meetings and, and mayor's races and stuff mm -hmm. all over. I totally get that. And then you know, somebody needs to show up and be like, hey, I'm also part of that tradition. So if we're going to talk about that tradition as one of the traditions, yeah. I just want you to know right. we differ. And also, I'm, this is not my own view. Like, I don't often wear a collar. I usually only wear a collar at some place where there's police involved mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. uh, because they really sometimes need some clarity about, you know, yep. who they're going right. to point their their weapons at. So I, yeah. I use it in that case. But sometimes you show up as a, you know, posturing as a religious leader simply to say, yeah, we should be included too. Like when we say all of us, we're not right. quieting any religion. Yeah. We should, we can line up every, every person up here can say religion, no religion, but don't give any benefit. Like don't listen more to me because I'm Christian than if I'm not. And right. everyone knows this. The thing, Katie, that gets me when you drill it down, like you have so well here, or you complicate the matters. They're all like, well, yeah, of course. I mean, of course we don't want there to be a religious test one way or the other. And you're like, but that's, but that's what you're doing. They're like, no, no, no. We're just, we're just mean that like as people who are that, like, they don't mean this stuff. And then some people do mean it and they use it in a way right. that, that, that propagates, propagates these ideas. I, I don't know. Yeah. It is just mind numbing. Um, it is. Yeah. And, and it, we it, have to talk about it and don't want to, at least, at least that's my view. I mean, I really would love to never talk about Christian nationalism again. Even when we put it up on like these posts, like this can be a convert. I know I can feel the eye rolls from people yeah. who follow our stuff like oh my gosh these guys on that again like i know listen, it's i mean it listen it is happening well so this is this was kind of true at our denominational gathering that you know just happened a couple week a week ago where we passed denominationally this resolution to oppose christian nationalist um the the christian nationalist agenda um that the 
a first response and common response from people is why do we need to talk about this what is it about and so we had to spend some time telling the stories from you know and i can tell so i'm in i live in a county where um a conserving pack took over literally took over four school boards they targeted four school boards they ran candidates for these school boards and now they have a playbook that each of those school boards is playing out uh, mm -hmm. around book banning around um uh gender expression and identity and the targeting of trans kids, gender diverse kids, and uh, how we talk about race, how we teach history and talk about race in our schools. And um, they're just they're just one after the other, just just mm. following this exact playbook. And it's real. And it is it is um, the worst kind of scapegoating and bullying of children, yep. uh, particular children and their families. It is it's seriously hurtful. This is not a high level kind of thing. This is right down on the ground with children in my church and my neighbor churches and in our schools. So uh, yeah, it has to be, it does have to be talked about. And that's all over the nation now we know, right? I mean, for yeah. a little while we thought it was just sort of maybe Texas and Florida in a race yeah. to the bottom and stuff. But now look, Tennessee, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Yeah, yeah, Colorado, um, yeah. we're following a number of these. California is actually <laughs> full of it. It's happening all over the place. Be because that's the other thing we should remember is that America, the United States, is organized by states on yeah. a map. But normally yeah. when you're driving from state to state, which I've done many times or ridden my bike you all have. the way across, like the only <laughs> way you know that you're in another state is somewhere along the line, you crossed a river and then you saw a sign, you know, something right. like that. Like it, yeah. the states are not real in that sense, right? Yeah. They're like social right. constructs that we lay over and say, if you're at this latitude and longitude, we call it that. And if you're at this one, we call it this. So fair enough. So we have we have states, generally speaking, and, and it's easy to say, well, us, you know, pick a state and call it conservative or call it liberal or progressive. But inside that state, there's all kinds of everybody's yeah. like even right. states that are super one way or the other. You're 60, mm -hmm. 40, maybe 65, 35. That mm -hmm. means 30, 35 percent or more of the population doesn't hold to those views at yeah. all. And they tend to cluster, which is interesting yeah. to me, how it, why it works, like beyond race, I don't understand how we can gerrymander. Like, how does that work? Why do people who live in the same neighborhoods or communities vote mm -hmm. similar to each other? Like, what is the mind meld that just goes on over time? Yeah. But, but all that to say, you could be in a very progressive state mm -hmm. politically and, you know, New York, California, Minnesota, and then find whole pockets where these things are happening, where these takeovers mm -hmm. of school boards and, mm -hmm. and, and other civic structures, you know, mm -hmm. like, like nonpartisan mayor or city manager races, you know, like yeah. Yeah. people are yeah. like, this has never been something where these kinds of religious demands are being put on our city manager or mayor. That's not something right. that we, that, that we do. So it's not, I think it's just good for us to remember, we don't, states don't say that it doesn't, because you live in a conservative state doesn't mean everybody in a state is conservative. In fact, we don't have conservative states and not conservative states. We just have yeah. like representatives and legislatures and voting patterns. That's what mm -hmm. we have. Every mm -hmm. state just has people and mm -hmm. we should just be winning hearts and minds and calling people to the things and not get this idea like, well, there's just something that's like ontologically red or blue because man, <laughs> that is, just the mm -hmm. furthest thing from from reality in my in my yeah. experience. Yeah, I, I work with um, uh, Charlie Johnson, whom, you know, with Pastors for Texas Children. And, you know, I lobby with him and, and his colleagues 
at the legislature on just one issue. Pastors for Texas Children is a one issue group and all we want is for public money to stay in public education. Uh, because public education is so foundational to the way we think about ourselves collectively and, and the common good. Um, and talking with Charlie over the last couple of years as these sort of, you know, these so-called culture war issues have spun up in these hyper-local places, you know, hyper-local school boards, city councils, library boards, et cetera. Um, Charlie is, is helping me see that these things are interrelated, that, um, you know, it, if you ask people in general what they think about public education in this country, a lot of people will say, oh, it's terrible. Public education is terrible. But it used to be that if you ask people, but what about your local school where your kids go to elementary school or middle school? What do you feel about that school? They say, oh, well, our school, our school is, is really good. I know the principal, the teachers are neighbors of mine. You know, I go up there, bring my kid lunch on Thursdays or whatever. And it's my our school is good. And I think these these hyper local um, uh sort of the, the, the catastrophic spin up of, you know, book banning and school board takeovers and that kind of stuff. It's serving to undermine people's mm -hmm. confidence in their local expressions of public education. And once you undermine people's confidence in their local neighborhood schools, the support for keeping public money in public education is going to is going to wither and die so that you could then follow the money and see where to, if, if the public money comes out of public education, where does it go? And it, it goes into these corporate expressions of education. It goes into people's pockets as they take their kids out and homeschool them and just take that subsidy for themselves. It's a sort of, you know, conspiracy of follow the money and kind yeah, of see where that's yeah, going. But the yeah. erosion of our confidence in those local institutions that are, are meant to be for our good is um, that's devastating. It's just devastating. Yeah, it sure is. And I'm so glad you do that work. And uh, Texas Pastors for Children is great. It's, it, mm -hmm. I wish there was a national one. I keep prodding Charlie on that. He's like, Doug, you know, and that, and that great Charlie, Doug, we got enough work to do here in Texas. That great <laughs> well, of his. he's got, um, they're doing it now in Oklahoma. There's a group in Florida. And so there's pastors great. for blank state children. I think you could probably Google that um, in your I'm state. I'm so glad. If, yeah, yeah. Yeah, He's because sort of it's it's important, and and you're reminded when you get into schools, especially that as we started, you know, 45 minutes ago, talking about the movement to resist public education has stayed alive and has existed in multiple expressions for the last hundred years or so, mm -hmm. and the there's some wind at the back of of that opposition to public schools partly yeah. because of the way charter schools have kind of come in. And a lot of this happens under the guise of charter schools and, and the homeschool movement has become something much more um, uh, recognizable, not just yeah. by conservative types of people, That's but right. by mm -hmm. many others. So it mm -hmm. feels to people like, um, well, yeah, we don't spend money very well. Wouldn't it be better if we could have some specialization and have kids only go to, you know, start taking, you know, have a, go to an art school or go to a more science focused school which look i'm i'm all for sure but but the same education for everyone uh yeah. accessible at with public funds which we've never really fulfilled that dream so i get that yeah. that's that that's the yeah. case and we yeah. need to and so the people who've been resisting that for all these mm -hmm. years that's why they keep tying it to property taxes and to other things where they can make sure disparities exist because yeah. there is a way to make sure that there's enough money for every school. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, t- tie it to students and have it be unrestricted. There's, yeah. Like whatever amount is needed, that's the amount. I, I was probably 1980s when I saw a bumper sticker that said, I dream of a day when school teachers have all the money they ever ask for and the military has to have a bake sale. Well, a bake sale. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of yeah. thing. Um, yeah. But that tells you something has been going on a long time and people have been mm-hmm. trying to advocate for this. And the Christian nationalists have seen the very same thing. That, yeah. and, and they did, the Berkshire Society saw this stuff back in the 50s and 60s and they targeted yeah. schools and there was a mom's movement to target schools and remove yeah. the communists and all that stuff. This right. has been, this has been decades and decades of practice, but they're really doing it now and they're doing it in ways that are more sophisticated and frankly more effective than I would have ever thought possible and ever, well, ever, you know, nightmare dreamed could have happened. Yeah. And part of that practice, part of that playbook that is repeated again and again, is to leverage people's fear of the other and our own tendencies to group, you know, with people who are just like us. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then to to leverage these social hot button issues um, for the sake of some larger but hidden project that if you came right out with your larger hidden project, people probably wouldn't vote for that. So I'm, I'm thinking of Deborah John Lee's book, Rescuing Jesus, where yeah. that was the first place I was that many years old when I, when I read her book and realized that the, the abortion debate in U.S. America had been leveraged to, to gain support for conserving candidates and policies. But the issue behind that, the hidden agenda, was around the segregation of schools. It was it was a racist agenda. But abortion was the one where they could they could prey on the sympathies of yeah. lots of people and say, don't murder babies, you know. Um, and it and for so many people, it was for so many people in power, it was never really about abortion at all. It was about this other thing. And I think the same thing is happening here where these hot button issues around LGBTQ identity, for example, and whether our kids are being groomed or I could just hardly even say it. It's so ridiculous and disgusting the way they talk about it. But um, the that kind of othering and scapegoating around that identity issue mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, is really in service of this larger project, which is to drain money out of the public institution and into private hands. And so people are being used. And we can see this, for example, in, in Texas, they passed in this last legislative session, uh, a law now that says uh, schools can have chaplains in the public school in place of trained counselors. Yeah. And the chaplains don't have to be educated theologically. They don't have to be ordained by a denomination. They don't have to be endorsed by any kind of credentialing organization. You can literally go and say, I'm a pastor yeah, and I want to be a chaplain in this school. Yeah. But here's the thing. Um, they didn't say that the schools have to do it, but they did say in this law that every school district, every independent school district in the state of Texas, and there are I think 1,600 of them, they all have to, within six months of the law taking effect, within six months, every school board in Texas must take a public vote on the record as to whether they will allow chaplains to take the place of counselors in their school district. Meaning it's less about whether they do it and more about just stirring up the debate, the contention, pitting neighbor against neighbor, diverting how many resources will we have to divert how many hours of the life of my church will we have to uh, give to attending school board meetings all around tarrant county the dallas fort worth metroplex to get our voice on the record to say please don't do this 
it's yeah. just, it's such a waste of energy and time, but I believe that's intentional. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> get us all spun up about that. Cause it's important. Um, it's amazing. And I don't know that they really care really what the outcome is. I, I'm going to add a comment on the screen here from someone named Christian's vote. Um, uh, I think this is sincere. I don't think it's a troll. So, uh, mm -hmm. we love people's uh, participation and comments here. So, um, for those that are just listening on the podcast, I'll, I'll read this one out. Um, the, the, the quote says, um, sorry, but wise parents don't want their children to be sexualized and indoctrinated with leftist ideas. Mature parents want school choice and excellent real education. Please stop hindering love and progress for families on behalf of the left. Okay, so I think, I, I don't know who that is. I don't think the person's last name was Vote. It would be great if it was, because if so, you should really be working for us as Vote Common Good. We'd love to have Christians vote. <laughs> Hi, Christians. Um, uh, so I think it's a, a perspective or a page or something. Uh, but I think this person saying, okay, hear what you all are saying. You don't want indoctrination of kids to happen through chaplains. You don't want indoctrination to happen through uh, school textbook curriculum being created. Right. right. There's a lot of people in this country who feel like this what they're up to is a pushback against what in this comment again says, uh, I want to make sure I read it right. Um, uh, children to be sexualized and indoctrinated with leftist ideas. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so that's the thing, right? You realize, yeah, stuff is going to be taught in school and yeah. who's going to be making the decisions about what is in the curriculum and what isn't. Yeah. Um, like we can't just be, well, it just doesn't functionally work that, Everything gets taught, of course not, and not every book in the world is available <laughs> as a school library. So choices yeah. are being made. Sure. How how do you think about this, Katie? That you you know you have people like who wrote the the words for the Christians Vote uh, post. Mm -hmm. How do you think about that that question for the people who feel like oh you people bellyache in here about you know these conservatives having a role in the school board? That's what we've been experiencing for all these years with all the leftists. Uh, propaganda, pushing our kids to think things yeah. that they don't want to think in their contrary to our, our values at home. Yeah. I, I mean, I would say from where I'm sitting in Texas, you, you'd have to go a long distance to convince me that Texas has ever pushed a leftist ideology in our schools ever. It was already daggum conserving before any of this stuff happened. But um, I would say that we, we in, in the United States, uh, we actually already do have school choice. There is no mandate in any state that your children must attend public school, or even in most cases that they must attend the public school that is associated with your address. In every case that I know about, and I educated my children in three states, New York, uh, uh, Georgia, and Texas, um, you actually have the option to request that your child go to a different school within the public school system. Uh, in most states, you have choices among charter schools as well to find the kind of emphasis that you want. You can always withdraw your children to educate them in private church schools, uh, private other kinds of schools or at home. We already have school choice. The, the question here is not whether to have school choice. The question is whether the public uh, funding uh, should fund every private choice when there is um, a communally good public school right there. Yeah. So school choice already exists. Um, I would say that um, the sexualization of our children is a problem for me too. I also don't want my kids or anyone else's kids to be sexualized. Um, and I'm hopeful that um, parents have the wherewithal to help their children understand their own bodies and um, 
their own sense of autonomy and boundaries, and that that is being taught both in our schools and in our homes, that parents are being good about that. I don't think that talking to kids about uh, gender identity and expression and uh, acknowledging the reality of sexual orientation is sexualizing our kids any more than straight kids are sexualized by talking about straight families and marriage and hmm. baby making and love and romance and all that. And all of that has been allowed. We've always been talking about sex in hmm. schools. But we've always been talking about, I mean, Dick and Jane had parents who made babies, right? That happened. So <laughs> I know. Maybe in so the panhandle of Texas, you talked like that, that dirty uh, yeah. school. <laughs> yeah. So we, it's just always been real. It's just that if we talk about a different expression of sexuality, then suddenly that's sexualizing kids. And that's, that's just, yeah, it's just not right. Well, I think so well said. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, uh, I think uh, Alex uh, from Florida makes a, a response to these comments. I think this was in response to it and said, facts should not be mistaken as leftist ideology. And, and that's the thing that I like. I, I guess I'm coming from a perspective and, you know, the, this other post person uh, has a different view. But I, I don't think we're pushing leftist ideas in schools. I mean, it, if there's a continuum, I think most school curriculum is teaching just normal, ordinary, boringish stuff Mostly, until yeah. <laughs> people take over school boards yeah. and then start saying, no, in science, we're not going to teach this. And in history, we're not going to teach that. We're going to keep these things out and we're going to start fussing with the curriculum that yeah. it, you, you reach a point at which, oh, we're not talking leftist ideas that are being pushed here. It seems yeah. to me it's the other way. And I get concerned, you know, we're, we've just passed the, the anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And some of us, including me twice saw uh, the movie Oppenheimer and what was going on and all that. Like, you know, for, I don't know, 60 years, 70 years, we've never reckoned with that in our curriculum. So, so I, again, this idea that there's like what's happening at schools is huge leftist ideas. As somebody on the left side of the political spectrum, not at all. But I can see how if you're way over on another side, everything to your left feels like it's leftist ideas. And where yeah. do we go with facts? So I, I'm not making this person's point for them. I just do think it's real. And what I've realized in all these conversations is the threat that I feel is happening now by Christian nationalists. Yeah. Other people say that's the threat I worry about from leftist nationalists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, and that's as real of, of a fear. I don't think it's backed up with same information, but it yeah, is yeah. as real of a fear for people as I think the fears that I, that, that I carry. I, th I think a place we could agree <clears throat> left and right, perhaps, is that uh, facts, as the last commenter said, or information is actually not neutral, right? Information mm -hmm. is not neutral. Um, and when we don't have a complete set of information, <clears throat> we might become sort of solidified in an idea of the way the world is, has been, and will be that is less than fulsome. So as we gain new information and as we gain some distance in time, like on Oppenheimer and, and the you know nuclear bombs, um, we, we ought to, we ought to, as we gain more information, we ought to change our minds about some things. We ought to say, oh, I, it was that way. I didn't know it was that way. And then we, we adjust. Yep. I think the conserving, um, worldview and when it gets really, really cemented, when it gets really, really solidified, it somehow mm. purports to say that we know all there is to know 
about what has been. We know all, that we have a complete set of information and thus we should stop. We should not get wow. any new information. We should just stop here because we know all we need to know about this. I, I was in a talk one time, I listened to a talk one time by um, a Jesuit priest, Guy Consolmagno. He's an astronomer at the Vatican Observatory. Did you know the Vatican has one of the best observatories in the world? You know, the Catholic Church used to do all the science on the planet, and eventually the sciences sort of, you know, came away from the church for good reason. But the Vatican held on to astronomy because they said, this is the science we can do without any hope of remuneration. There's no money to be made in astronomy. So this is the one we do because it's just an exploration of the grandeur of God, and we should be involved in that. So this Jesuit scientist, uh, Guy Consolmagno, gave a talk about how science and theology are related. And he said this, that good scientists understand that they are never going to solve the question they're working on. All a good scientist hopes to do is nudge the trajectory of science in their field a little bit, nudge it in a new direction. So the trajectory changes and it goes in a, a more right direction. It goes wow. nearer to the truth than we were before. And he said, so scientists are never afraid of new information. That's the nudge, right? That's the little bit of propulsion that changes the direction that gets it a little truer. He said, in the same way, theology, we never imagine that we know it all, we, that we've got the complete set of facts or information. We always know that there's a little bit more and we'll, yeah. never, be, we'll never arrive at an understanding of God, but we just nudge it a little bit with, with every new generation, new thoughts. I would say the same about history hmm. Right. I would say the same about literature. We never have the set. Yeah, We're getting so good. New, new pieces all the time and it nudges us a little closer to the common good, a little closer to what God wants for this world God still loves. See, this is why I'm a fan of Katie Hayes. By the way, Galileo Church is the name of Katie's church. So if you're looking like you're thinking like, I don't know, there's no churches around I can be part of. <laughs> there's an online way to be part of Galileo Church. Yeah. Yeah. And unless you think it's named that because it's like in a little town called Galileo or it's in the Galileo uh, subdivision. No, no, no. It was just picked. It was just chosen probably for those very reasons right there. Those uh, exact as, reasons. Yes. <laughs> as to why yes. it's called Galileo. Galileo, Yeah. Devout and kicked out just like most of us. <laughs> Devout and kicked out. See, mm -hmm. this is what I'm saying. You're unbelievable. Uh, so good. Hey, thank you. Uh, and uh, let's keep talking about this and, and many other good things. And every time, you have something like you're in an article, we'll do a podcast about it. Hey, and, and by, by the way, do you, do you run your own podcast? Are you podcasting? Um, we, we podcast out sermons from mm -hmm. Galileo and sermons are a big deal for us. They're our kind of theological rehabilitation. We're trying to sort of grab back our Christian faith um, from people who said we couldn't have it. So yeah, they're collaborative and substantive usually. <laughs> Devout and kicked out kinds of sermons. It's, so yeah, people called, who are looking for that, Say it again. Yeah. It's called That's What She Said, <laughs> our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she said. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you, Katie. And uh, now I go through a list of the people who said things, and I just say their name and say thanks to them. Thanks, uh, Alex and and uh, and Mike D and, and Christine and Trisha, uh, Yadi, Carl. Leslie, Trisha, again, uh, Richard, thank you. Uh, Christian's vote, thank you for uh, paying attention to this. Danny, Verna, uh, Gregory, all of you that were um, willing to 
chat in one of your places. If you're not seeing all of those where you are watching this, it's because we do this on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube mm-hmm. and all the places because um, we know that uh, that's not the smart way to build an audience. The smart way is to have one, <laughs> put it on a one social network and drill it and build it. And uh, we just we just don't want to make people have to go over to YouTube. But if you don't care and you want to follow us on YouTube, it's better for us if you do it on YouTube. So, you know, whatever. Uh, and there's also an audio version of this. So if you're watching this now and not listening to it, you can share the audio version of our podcast, Common Good Podcast. And if you're only listening to this and you want to watch it, you can go over to YouTube and look at Bill Cunningham. All right, that's all the, that's all the pushing. Tomorrow, uh, Thursday, we're going to be talking with astrophysicist Berger Pastor, as we do many Thursdays. Uh, his name is Paul Wallace. And we talk, we, we nerd out on science and birds and theology and stuff on Thursdays. Amazing. Ask him if he's met Guy Consolmagno because... Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. I will. Maybe we'll see about having Guy on. Uh, is Guy still around? Is Guy still yeah. a living, living sentient as being? As far as I'm aware. Yes. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thank you, so Thank you Katie. Thank you, Thank Galileo you, Church. Thanks to all of you for watching. We'll see you later. Y'all. Bye.